1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Vijaya Nagarajan, who is Associate Professor at the Department of Theology and Religious Studies, and also part of the Program in Environmental Studies at the University of San Francisco. We'll be speaking about her brand new... um, 2019 OUP publication entitled uh, Feeding a Thousand Souls. Um, it's lovely to have you on the podcast. Welcome.
0: Oh, thank you. And it's delightful to be here with you.
2: Indeed. Now, we probably should state at the outset that this podcast, um, uh, it, it just so happens that I was already in conversation with Vijay about coming on the podcast. But um, um, it's, it's, it's officially part of a three-part series where we'll be talking about this AAR, American Academy of Religion panel called New Books in Hindu Studies, which happens to be the previous name of this podcast. And Vijaya's book will be compared, uh, to Leah Como's material devotion in a South Indian poetic world. Um, uh, we've already done a podcast for Leah's book and now we're doing Vijaya's. Have I misspoken? Is that correct?
0: yes that's that, correct that's correct yeah
2: fantastic I believe there's Should.
0: another book as well that's on the panel so that's why I, but i don't yeah i don't have the full there study.
2: there is indeed there's uh shankar nair's uh translating oh, wisdom i've just interviewed him great. uh great. his book is being compared to 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 pat and uh genealogy of devotion so it just worked out that uh, of of the ones being compared I had a previous one already, and one of you is newly interviewed. So it should be an interesting panel indeed. Yes. Um, Now, aside from this panel, let's zoom in on your book. Um, Your book is about a very specific phenomenon. What's your book about?
0: The book is about a a popular women's ritual art tradition called the kolam, which is spelled K-O-L-A-M. And it's a Tamil word that means beauty and form. Um, And it's a practice that's performed. It's hard to count how many people, but I would, I would, you know, because so many Tamil women do it, it's, I would approximate, I mean, millions of Tamil women do it every morning um, throughout the state of Tamil Nadu and also wherever Tamils have migrated. Uh, Throughout the world. And it's made with rice flour. And it's done in the old days, it was not such old days, but like 30 years ago (laughs) um, when I started looking at this. um, It was done early in the morning um, before sunrise. um, And it could take anywhere from two minutes to three hours. um, And they're just beautiful geometric and figurative rice flower designs to honor the goddess Lakshmi and to honor the goddess Bhudevi and many, many other reasons. So my book is really a a kind of, I think of myself as a translator in a way. So I'm an, an ethnographic translator. So uh, an anthropologist and art historian. Um, and I really spent many years in India um, in Tamil Nadu traveling to villages and towns and cities and getting up early in the morning and interviewing women um, throughout the day on this practice, um, so it's really been it's really been a kind of puzzle working out. The book is a working out of a puzzle of how something so ephemeral, like rice flour designs that disappear after a few hours, can have so many different layers of meanings embedded within them, both that are both visible and invisible, um, and so it's been. It's been just—it's been a life work, and it's been just a, a great honor to um, actually, you know, and privilege um, of, of being able to delve into this tradition. Yeah.
2: So, so before we talk about the various levels of meaning that you discuss in your book, yeah. tell us, uh, uh, tell us the backstory. How did this become an object of scholarly study for you?
0: <laughs> I think that's almost a book length, you know, answer, but I'm going to try. <laughs>
2: Oh, good. So uh, I love Puranas. So, you know, uh, I'll ask a question about the backstory and you'll have another Shastra emerge from the backstory.
0: <laughs> I mean, my first chapter is actually the backstory because I wanted people, especially future scholars, to understand how kind of happen chance and serendipitous, um, uh, like something that comes into your hands or you pay attention to, um, or something that's been invisible that you've had as a embedded in your landscape, in your childhood, and that you've always been asking the question of why, but then in order to be able to answer that question, why you have to run into certain figures and people, and and then it's like a gigantic weaving, you know. But really, I would say, you know, I, I, I was born in India in a village, um, called the Ananguri in Tanjawa District, and then was raised in New Delhi and Washington, D.C., back and forth as a child, and then um, immigrated officially as a teenager. And um, wherever my family was living, my amma would make uh, one of these kolams every morning before sunrise, around 4.30 in the morning. So I would hear her open the door, I would hear her, and this was in Maryland, in suburban Maryland, with snow falling in the winter, and she would not skip a day, um, you know, unless there were ritual reasons to skip that day. And so it just really um, moved me deeply, you know, to see my grandmother and my aunts make it in our ancestral village, my mother make it in front of our government flat uh, in Delhi, and then our suburban Townhouse in Maryland, and so I always wondered, you know, why does my mom do this every morning? Why? What compels her to do this? But it was really, really later in the tw- my twenties that I ran into a philosopher named Ivan Illich, who wrote a beautiful book called H Two O and the Waters of Forgetfulness. And he asked me, he was working on his. It was back then in the eighties and when people were working on index cards, and those scholars still do that. But so he had an index card on the column, and after dinner in Claremont. There was a whole group of us, and he said, Vijaya, you know, can you tell me something about the kolam? And I said to him, and I'm embarrassed that I said this at the time, I said, Oh, it's just something my mother does. There's really nothing to say about it. <laughs> but, you know, if you want to ask me questions, I'll show you one tomorrow morning, and then you can ask me questions. And we ended up talking for four hours. He asked me tons of questions. I couldn't answer any of them. But that was a kind of seed that was planted. On top of my own seed of, of the question of why, on top of the seed of witnessing my mother making it, you know, all my life, um, and it really, you know, it brought. So it, it really brought. And then the Smithsonian. I was invited by the Smithsonian for the Festival of India in '85 um, to organize a uh, my mother and myself um, to do column as part of this sort of one of the main exhibits on the mall. Um, and that was really fascinating to try to do the research. There was hardly anything written on it, so I really had to do a lot of oral interviews of Tamil women in the washington d c area and I you know I became a feminist when I was twelve in nineteen seventy three and an environmentalist around the same age around the same time and I just you know my feminist iris were aroused. I was like, "Why is there no book written on this of a women's ritual practice that's done by many Tamil women?" But I didn't it wasn't until a few years later that I made it the, the topic of my uh, dissertation uh, in South Asian Studies at UC Berkeley. You know, I came in with two topics, but I, the, my first semester, uh, Professor Joanna Williams in Art History was teaching a seminar on Ananda Kumaraswamy. and I really um, you know feel like in some ways this book is a marriage of between the part of me that's that is kinship to Ananda Kumaraswamy and Stella Cramerish. Um, and also, um, you know, Ivan Illich, the Smithsonian, um, and so it's like a, it's like a really a blend of all these different influences. And chandraleka also, and I met so many friends along the way. It's really, I can't imagine my life apart from the column. So it's really been, you know, like a 50-year a journey uh, in some ways, and and and, and in a lot of ways. That's what the book is, the frame tale in a way, is of my kind of discovery of its importance and vitality in my own life and documenting its importance and vitality to hundreds and hundreds of women. And that that really reflects millions of women's practices. And I think for for me, it's not just about the kolam in Tamil Nadu, but it's also about all the parallel women's ritual art traditions throughout India. So the Alpana in Bengal, uh, the Mugu in Andhra Pradesh, um, the Rangoli, of course, which is sort of the most popular uh, which is in Karnataka and uh, um and Mandana and Rajasthan and many, many other ritual art forms. So it's almost a book that reflects the kind of philosophical underpinnings of a women's ritual practice in Hinduism that is, a, you know, not in Tamil Nadu is where it's performed every single day, but throughout India, it's performed at big um, ritual occasions like Diwali and you know, someone's birthday or things like that. And so really it's like 400 million Hindu women do this kind of practice at some time during the day. And that's a significant part of the population of the world. <laughs> you know, so this is really a kind of unpacking um, of, a, of a popular Hindu women's ritual and just the, the amazing layers of complex, um, you know, literary ethnographic and anthropological, art historical, aesthetic, and mathematical, it turns out, and design um, significances and symbolism uh, that is sort of embedded within
2: the tradition. Why is the kolam a women's ritual?
0: It is and it isn't, actually. <laughs> I mean, it is a women's ritual for sure, but in fact, it um, Men do ritual men do perform it as a ritual when they're the foundations of a temple or a particular um like a like a you know fire ceremony for Agni. Um and so but it's done um you know, not necessarily secretly, but but it's done without kind of sort of visible annotation of it, you know. It's done as an integral part. Um and sometimes women will also be called in to do the ritual the kolam at the foundational level as well, like before the bricks are laid, etc. But sometimes men will also do it. But I think one of the primary reasons that it's become that it's a women's ritual art is that it is a kind of enactment or performative ritual of women's role as protectors of the household. Um, And so it's the first ritual act of the day. And it's done as a kind of ritual announcement to the world that all is well in that household and that that household has the capacity to be generous to strangers, um, to beggars, to anyone who has need of food, um, that it has an abundance that day. It's not in need, ritual need itself. It's in a state of ritual abundance. Um, So I think that's one of the reasons. I think you know, gender-wise, I think that women. You know, partly it's the it's the goddess tradition. It's part of the part of the 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 practice for the goddess Lakshmi, and so there's a kind of uh, you know r- r- ritual relationship between the woman of the house who's considered to be the Lakshmi of the household and the generic mythological goddess Lakshmi, um, and so it's a way of attracting the kolam is supposed to be designed to attract the attention of. The gods and goddesses that are, you know, uh, you know, supposedly you know, floating in the sky, you know, uh, during the Brahma Murtam, during that time, the phase of time right before sunrise. So it's supposed to be done before the first rays of the sunlight hit the first threshold of the house. Um, it's also done, as I mentioned a little bit before, that it's done as a practice to honor the goddess Bhudevi and Bhuma Devi, Uh, the earth goddess. And the idea is that there are so many actions that we do as human beings throughout the day that offend her, that hurt her, that cause her pain, that this is a kind of, before we do it, a kind of acknowledgement that we are hurting you and forgive us. Um, So I think there's a kind of, you know, gender relation link between sort of the mythological uh, divine female figures and the kind of devonized female householder um, that gets articulated through this practice. So it's a kind of bridge-making. I would also say that, you know, in some ways it's a, uh, you know, at another level, it's a kind of, it's a boundary marker between the ritual status of the household and the public space, or what I would call the commons which is another part of my work. But so I think it's it's also an interesting threshold container. Um, So that's a long answer to your question.
2: (laughs) Uh, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Uh, It's always about the scenic route. And my questions are always meant to be generative. I always ask these naive questions to see what will come. And one such question is something you you touched on in passing. And it's, why is your book called Feeding a Thousand Souls?
0: Uh, Thank you for asking that question. Um, you know, we all spend quite a bit of time figuring out what the title should be, and so I played with a lot of different titles. Um, Feeding a Thousand Souls. I mean, each of the chapters is constituted around besides the frame tales of the introduction and the and the epilogue um around one of the reasons that women gave me for making the column. um and Feeding a Thousand Souls is the last next to last chapter of the book. And part of the reason is because women would often say, know, give me all these, you know, the the the, the usual reasons, you know, Lakshmi, Budevi, and all kinds of other reasons," and then they would say, "Ah, but the real reason we do the kolam is to feed a thousand souls." Um, and what that referred to is that it's because it's edible art; it's literally made out of rice flour. Traditionally, of course, we have the plastic stick-on columns. Now we have stone, a flower, but you know, and this is where the elder women would be bone to me. They'd say, you know, the younger generations don't understand why the column is made, because if they understood it, they wouldn't, you know, offer a design that's not edible. So the reason is the following: that the idea is that the column would feed a thousand souls. That a that a Hindu householder is 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 required to feed a thousand souls every day, um, and how do you do that? If you're a big king, you can feed a thousand souls, thousand human souls. But it's just as good for your sort of positive karma accumulation to feed a thousand animal souls. And the literally after a few hours or during the few hours, the column is consumed, is eaten by ants, birds, squirrels, earthworms. Um, and you'll see like holes coming up from the earth of animals coming up and eating and then going back down. Um, and I was, I could have left it at that um, because that was a very beautiful explanation, but I, I, I couldn't finish the book until I could, I thought there's more layers to this. You know, why feed a thousand souls? You know, what, it, where does that motivation come? Is there something something deeper, something that I'm not seeing. And that took me a while to put the pieces together. And what I found was, you know, I always say footnotes have changed my life, as it's changed many scholars' lives. <laughs> um, but there was a footnote in a third century shastra text um, that talked more about, you know, feeding a thousand souls every single day. And what I was able to put together really just blew my mind, really stunned me in terms of if the idea is that when a Hindu builds a house that is considered to be one of the most evil actions a person, a Hindu can do. Because when you build your house, you are kicking out all the animals and the beings that had lived there as their house before you clear that clear them out. So you have made all these animals homeless and no matter how much good karma you accumulate, you're never able to compensate for the sin of making all these animals homeless for in the same space as how you build your house. And so the column is a small compensatory ritual for that other greater, you know, non uh, compensatable sin. Um, and I just, when I put that puzzle together, I have—I mean, I've worked with um, uh, as an activist. I've worked with uh, Native American Indians uh, in some of my other work, and but I've just never heard of this kinds of sensitivity to the impact of a householder on the ecology, ecological surroundings of the house, and I and I and I—it really in terms of our climate crisis in terms of our environmental crisis i just thought it's a it's an amazing clue as to the the necessity for us worldwide to develop a deeper sensitivity to the nature of the true nature of our actions you know something that is seems as innocent as building a house you know for oneself that one needs and being made aware you know, for myself from this third century BCE footnote, you know, the Dharma Shastras, you know, and then of course, you know, it's, it's like forgotten knowledge in a way, or, and, and it's like putting the pieces together, you know, out of the oral traditions, which is what the kolam uh, mostly is in, and then tying and and then figuring out the sources of some of these knowledge traditions. Um, and really, um, you know, when you look at like the the idea of the traditional ecological knowledge paradigm, um, there's all these sort of layers of traditional ecological knowledge within Hinduism, Hindu texts, Hindu ritual practices, as there are in other religious practices as well. So that, to me, was kind of the the culmination of all these figuring out these puzzles, you know, in the book. And so I thought, you know, I because we have moved in the last fifty years, in my lifetime, um, toward a more plasticized world and a more industrialized world, um, I wanted to alert the reader um, to that concept of feeding a thousand souls. And really, I hope that, you know, students, readers, um, and the general public, you know, that, that this book is can, can help us become more sensitive to the world around us and the actions that we do on the world. It, to me, it's like both a literal... Um, Actually, you know, literal uh, sort of uncovering of the knowledge and a metaphoric can be used as a metaphoric tool for us as human beings at this moment in human history, and that's where I, I think the column is, is is just astounding to me in terms of its um, you know its layers of embedded knowledge.
1: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent
2: off. So internalized wisdom really in action. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. What are it's some of necessary. the other significations? What's what are that? some of the other? What are some of the other significations or or, 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 or meanings uh, implicated in the column?
0: Yeah, um, that's a great question. You know, so each of my, I'll just, you know, it's it's almost, uh, you know, the, the like. Actually,
2: sure. Just go through the chapters.
0: Right. Sure. Yeah. yeah I, I just will just read the titles. Um, just so a reader knows, so the second chapter is called "Following Lines of Beauty," and that's really my ethnographic journey. Um, but chapter three is on rituals, so it's really trying to understand, you know, how does the kolam operate in terms of its class of rituals? What are some other rituals that are like henna um, that are parallel to this ritual form? And then thresholds is really a mapping of the kolam through sacred time and sacred space. So when and where are the kolams made and why? So that's a kind of uh, mapping of that. Um, And then Andal, you know, one of my discoveries also early on, uh, Andal, one of the bhakti poetesses from the 8th century, 9th century, uh, is the first Tamil uh, literary text um, that mentions the kolam, not as per se the kolam, but it's called mandala in that context but it's clearly referred to a threshold design. It doesn't talk about rice flour. It talks about it being made out of sand. Um, so that's that's very interesting. So that's kind of the first, because I looked at ancient Tamil uh, Sangam literature as well to see if there are any references to the kolam. And there are references, many references to the word kolam, but they mean form and not the practice of the kolam itself. Um, and so the first actual reference to a threshold design is Andal's mentioning of the mandala, which is, of course, a Sanskrit word. So we have mandalas, of course, much earlier in Sanskrit literature. Um, so Andal is one of, is that chapter, and she has uh, you know uh, poetic references, so I analyze the context in which uh, and the metaphoric uh, resonances of the mention of the kolam. Um, and then the next chapter is on the design. So there, I found all these different rivers of designs in the kolam, um, figurative, geometric, Um, And, you know, uh, so all those different kinds. And then uh, one of the surprising things for me was the mathematics of the kolam. So for the last 50 years, there's been many computer scientists and mathematicians who've explored certain genres, certain rivers of design, especially the pulli kolam. Uh, not the column the column which is a grid of laying down a grid of dots, and having one continuous line crossing around each of the dots without crossing each line more than once. Um, and those design traditions have been used by computer sciences for study of fractal grammars um, and all kinds of different um, infinity symmetry, um, etc. Um, and so th- there's a whole. I mean. Have boxes of articles. <laughs> Could be. I mean, there's actually somebody working on just the column and mathematics, which I'm very grateful to. So this is really just a chapter to kind of initiate the reader of this whole world of ethnomathematics. And then I, um, I also discovered column competitions, um, and so that's one of the ways that the column I think stays very much alive. People are always asking me, "Is column still done?" Um, and it is very much so because. At Margari season between mid-December to mid-January, is the heyday of the kolam making. Um, and so people practice a lot in their notebooks. Um, and there's a kind of informal competition and sometimes also formal competitions. So I look at three different competitions. Um, uh, and so uh, So that's a really interesting sort of idea of how, do, how does a kolam competition rejuvenate itself continuously throughout the ritual year through these kind of subtle uh, competitions between women on, on who's doing the best column um, and and now there's competitions in mag- women's magazines and uh, newspapers and, um, and and they're almost like track team meets you know <laughs> like sport sporting events <laughs> Um And sometimes you'll have a men's, uh, competitive area as well. This is like an answer to your question earlier about, you know, uh, in terms of women and men doing it. And then, um, the next two chapters are really about, you know, the column and ecology. So what does it mean in terms of having a tradition that has this ecological, uh, you know, symbolic underlying meaning, and what are the implications for actual actions of women and the community in spite of having these, these, uh, Ecological prescriptions or proscriptions embedded within them, and it, it turns out it's a more complicated issue. It's not that there's a one-to-one correspondence between uh, doing a ritual for Bhudevi. Uh, you know, women are still stay, is throwing sanitary, you know, soiled sanitary pads over the over the the fence, you know, into the public areas uh, on Bhudevi. So it's almost as if by asking for forgiveness then you don't necessarily let it affect you for the rest of the day. It's like I've already asked for forgiveness, so therefore I just carry on with my daily life, right? It's a compensatory action rather than a transformative action. So I analyzed that. And then um, I found that also columns are done not just on thresholds, but it's also done during ritual times in front of trees, for example. And I found this you know, in the Adivasi areas in Tamil Nadu, among the Todas and the Irulas, um, and in the forest, uh, you know, uh, in the Western, in the Eastern Ghats. So that was also fascinating. And then there's also this whole tree marriage ritual as well. So I talk about that too. Um, and so I'm really, you know, so, and then the last chapter is a ritual of generosity, of the feeding a thousand souls. So I also analyze the column in terms of what are, I see it as a ritual of generosity, you know, two of non-reciprocal gift giving. So it's not as if it's a, it's a part of the gift economy that doesn't expect something in return. Um, And so you're giving to a beggar that you're not directly expecting a gift back. So it's your capacity for giving that is to strangers really. Um, So that's, that's what I just sort of mapped out the whole, you know, context of the book. Yeah. So it really touches anthropology, art history, um, aesthetics, mathematics. Um, that's why it took me so long to do this book because I had to almost learn each of those fields before I could actually write that chapter. Um, because the column was, I could have just written it as an art history, uh, you know, focus or a design focus or an anthropological focus or a mathematical focus. <laughs> um, but I, uh, or, you know, or, um, a Sanskrit literary focus or a Tamil literary focus, but I really wanted to do the whole compendium, so that took that took a while, <laughs> It took a part of a lifetime.
2: <laughs> so, from this both breadth and depth of 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 study of the column, mm-hmm. what is it you hope folks would take away from this groundbreaking groundbreaking study?
0: It's a beautiful question. You know, I think I think first I want. Um, I mean, this is an offering in a way, this book, um, for the hopeful continuity of the tradition, you know, uh, as far as we know, it's been going on since for 1300 years and in some contexts, you know, even from 1200 BCE from Vedic rituals to the sun God. So it's, you know, it's a contribution toward the hope that it would continue for another thousand years. Right. Um, so that's part of it. Um in the terms of onslaught of modernity and industrialization and lack of time to be able to do this kind of thing. So I think, you know, this book is definitely from, you know, all the interviews I've done um, is, is, is catalyzed and has helped um, make women feel that this is a worthwhile tradition. This is something, you know, because when I was doing the research, a lot of people would say, Oh, you know, not the women, but some men, um, not all men either, but they would just say, oh, you know, there's nothing to study in the column." It's exactly what I had thought, you know, initially. You know, what is there to say about the column? Um, and so I think a lot of, even women, thought, oh, it's a part of our household duties. You know, there's really nothing more than a few phrases of what it might mean. So I, what I hope a reader would take from that or a student of the column, is, you know, many, many rituals, not just the kolam, and not just in hinduism but in many traditions all around the world especially that women do are kind of seen as cursory as seen as superficial as seen as um just having a single meaning and i what i hope is that that this this, this book will contribute to a kind of re if one could see it as a metaphor reweighing of the the beauty and the import of you know, traditional knowledge systems that seem archaic initially, that seem not that relevant to the contemporary world. And I guess, you know, part of it, it's like, you know, it, it's like we bemoan the loss of species, you know, animal species. And I see the column as a kind of knowledge species and and ritual practice species. So I hope it bolsters, um, you know, the visibility of all these different kinds of knowledge, especially the oral and visual knowledge. You know, we, you know, know, when we're situated in the sort of Western, you know, economic sort of capitalist system, you know, we are focused on, uh, you know, the, the written word. And we don't give as much importance to the continuation of oral knowledge and visual knowledge. And, you know, we tend to think of them as kind of superficial modes of, of, of holding knowledge. And I guess I want to, I hope this book reveals that how, I mean, there's, you know, encyclopedias of knowledge in the Kolam practice. And I had 12 books of, uh, you know, worth of materials that I collected, you know, over those years. So it's really, you know, this is just the beginning, you know, I see as, uh, and I, and I guess I also, you know, I want the reader to see that, Um, You know, in order to solve the problem that we're in right now, in terms of climate, that we have to reach into all the tools at hand. And we have tools at hand that we don't even realize that can help us see the world differently. And part of it is, I think, I hope the column, through the eye of the column, I hope the reader can, you know, feel a kind of empathy for themselves and the world to act in, you know, more sensitive ways. So I don't I don't know if that makes sense, but that's what I'm you
2: know. Yes, that makes sense at least at least to your current audience of one and I'm sure to many more <laughs> as this podcast will enter um the black box of the internet. No, that makes that makes a great deal of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a number of musings came to mind um, as you were sharing the hopeful significance or impact of this book. And just by happenstance, uh, right before this call, I got off of a call, um, a Zoom call, a tutorial, an online tutorial for a course. Mm-hmm. The course was at uh, an online school that I set up called um, the School of Indian Wisdom. Mm-hmm. And precisely that point some students were making, the, the um, uh, what, what's, what's the word? The thirst for an appreciation of other modes of knowledge, mm-hmm. oral traditions, yeah. um, et cetera, et cetera. And there's, I mean, there's, there's so many mindsets and worldviews encoded in what we study. And there, there are so many ways in which we can enrich our own seeing power mm-hmm. through um, these unassuming, quote-unquote, rituals. What comes to mind is, you know, in, in, in modern parlance, the word ritual is it, it obviously can be uh, is more, most often um, a mechanical act. It's it's, it's, it's of the mm-hmm. profane, of the sacred. It's a, mm-hmm. a secular ritual, brushing one's teeth. And there are people who engage uh, religious rituals in that manner mm-hmm. and yet upon closer introspection there's so much uh meaning um a significant like there's so much behind why this has been kept around mm-hmm. for centuries mm-hmm. uh, and beyond and mm-hmm. so it's it's it, it is a fascinating way to the, the column is is this beautiful kaleidoscope into culture into yeah. into culture yeah. Yeah. And it also bespeaks the extent to which one specific phenomenon can be it can be implicated in so many layers of the human experience. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, and I think it's a kind of counterweight to me of, um, in terms of the Western epistemological traditions of disciplinary boundaries. you know, I mean people talk about interdisciplinarity of two fields, you know, or three or something. But this is like seven fields, you know. This book, you know, I had to really cross over, jump over a lot of fences, um, and figure out, okay, you know, I need to get this knowledge, I need to understand how the column I need in order to understand the column better, because that's where the women were leading me, you know, um, the Tamil women that I was interviewing, so and, and in conversation with. So I think um I think you know, to me, part of the problem that we're in as much as there's been so much beauty and wisdom and, uh, you know, unlayerings of knowledge in the scientific method um, and in the scientific worldview, um, which I totally espouse, you know, which I totally support. And I would say that the, the, the deep, um, single-minded uh, focus um, like even when we're doing a PhD thesis, I remember describing to my mom, who's mostly in the oral tradition, you know, she said, "What is a PhD?" And I said, "Well, it's like taking, it's like looking at a carpet and taking one string of one section and really looking at it for some years." And then she was like, "Well, what happens to the rest of the carpet?" <laughs> you know? And I said, "Exactly. That's precisely, in a way, the epistemological break that happened, you know, uh, you know, with, with the last 500 years that we have." kind of unhooked, um, specific, deep knowledge that we need uh, to understand, but without, you know, having the wherewithal to connect it to all the fields of action that it is naturally connected to, right? So then we see it in isolation, and we cannot see the impact of that particular, whether it's, you know, the DD, whether it's DDT, we, we can't even, it seems radical to just record the the, the the impact of DDT, you know, on the surrounding systems, because the way that we've been taught to see is through the narrow discovery of DDT, right? So then we're not, you know, and that's why Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring was such a huge breakthrough because she was able to, you know, as a naturalist, was able to jump across those borders. So I guess, you know, to me, like for us with the, tremendous um deadlines we have in terms of uh climate um it's imperative for us to be able to hold the beauty of the specific knowledge because i couldn't have done the column book without that focus you know without that single-minded you know focus so i also really respect and appreciate that tradition and that way of knowing but I think at the same time, simultaneously, we need to keep hold of the embeddedness of that knowledge within the circles of knowledge making that it's in, it, that it's with, located within. Because without doing that, we're doing a disservice to the specific knowledge itself and our own ability to see how things are connected to each other.
2: No. Well, there's this. There's this. Uh, much of what you say resonates in different ways. There, there is this tension between. You know, um, I'm I'm staring at, you know, one leaf off of one twig, off of one branch over the tree and having no clue if you're in the Amazon or if you're in the, are you on the the coastal side of the rainforest? Are you, uh, which cardinal direction you're in, what time of day it is? So Mm -hmm. it's required of us. Mm -hmm. right as part of the production of academic knowledge to to focus in Mm -hmm. and and examine closely Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and nevertheless I think um I think the most insightful and and brilliant scholarship are the ones that pan in and take a look at the twig and take a look at whatever it is the ladybug or whatever Mm -hmm. and yet are able to still locate that Mm -hmm. into a larger flight pattern, into Mm -hmm. a larger ecosystem. Mm -hmm. But it's difficult because uh, naturally, it seems to me, folks tend to be very detail-oriented, nitty-gritty, or folks tend to be more conceptual or big picture. And then to get that balance right can be difficult. So it's it's a fascinating tension that I'm sure will come up in uh, (laughs) many a dissertation and book (laughs) beyond this conversation, for many a soul. Yeah. Is there anything else about the study that you wanted to mention before we close for today?
0: I think um, that I find for myself um, in the sea of where we're located in human time and history at this moment, that the column is is of incredible beauty, is incredible vitality, um, is an incredible... um, Uh, an eye into the world that can also give us enormous energy to deal with the world, you know, as it is. So I guess um, I see it as a kind of, um, I mean, it literally means beauty in Tamil. And so I think, uh, you know, how do we keep the presence of beauty uh, in within us and, and around us at the same time, recognizing all the chaos and the disasters around us. So I guess you know um, I, I was very moved. You know I'm going to be doing a, a, a interview um, in a couple of weeks uh, for an organization called the Archives in Bangalore, and I said, please, you know, can we do it in a year? Because I'd love to meet you guys, and you know, and and you know the the organizer said, you know, we need to hear about the column from you now because we are in such a you know we're in an emotional moment in India that we need to remember something like the column. And it's going to give us enormous um, healing. Healing, yeah. And I said, okay, I said, okay, I'll do this. Of course, I'll do this. Yes, you know, even though I want to meet you guys in person, and I'd rather see you guys in a year or two, you know. But amidst the enormous suffering that's happening right now with COVID, and so I think, you know, I, it was like the most moving, one of the most moving requests I've ever had. So I guess that's where I, I think. The column and parallel rituals like that, um, I think, can help us, you know, you know, increase our vitality and energy to be able to deal with what is around us and what is happening to us. So I, I hope that does that for the reader as well.
2: Well, the vaccines can certainly help safeguard the body, but whereby do we tend to the soul? Yeah. Whereby oh, do we? Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, this has been such a joy, really. <laughs>
2: yes, indeed. Thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for having me and inviting me.
2: You're welcome. For those listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Vijaya Nagarajan on her brand-new OUP publication, Feeding a Thousand Souls, Women, Ritual and Ecology in India, and Exploration of the Column." Uh, this is our second of three um interviews that are related to a panel at the upcoming meeting of the American Academy of of Religion. The panel is called New Books in Hindu Studies. Um, until next time, stay safe, stay well, um, and keep contemplating uh, the beauty of the column. Take care.
0: Thank you.